Welcome to the Three to Ten Project. Two white, cisgendered males who've been friends for over 25 years, exploring race, gender, and education by talking through the intersection of our experiences with what we're reading, listening to, and thinking about. And most importantly, considering how to show up moving forward. It's a long-term commitment, three to 10 years of anti-racist culture building. I'm Mark. I'm Reed. Just a quick note on the name for this podcast. Three to 10 Project has been borrowed from Resma Menicum. You can learn more about this idea and about Resma at the link shared in the podcast description. Let's get to it. Yep, and that's Mark's footsteps. Turns out he is a bit more coherent when he is running. Happy Sunday, Mark. Hey, good morning. How long is your run for today? Well, it's 20 miles. Um, but I got to say, I'm a little, you know, I'm training for this ultra. Oh, there's a dog coming at us. There we go. Um, and it, I thought I needed to do 25. So when I looked at my training plan and saw it was 20, I breathed a sigh of relief. Um, and, uh, and the weather is just, you know, it's 55 degrees. Research shows that that's literally the ideal temperature distance running so yeah um looking forward to it i'm running with the dog um hopefully it won't pull me too much and yeah i'm ready to ready to engage well that's great it's the uh we're in the we're on the sunday of a beautiful long weekend you know tomorrow is indigenous people's day so perhaps i will acknowledge that i am as usual, just sitting in my guest room here as we talk, but it is, you know, I live on a gorgeous little piece of land, and this actually was part of the large area that the Wabanaki tribes, a whole bunch of different tribes, but the, the Wabanaki Confederacy really were the sort of first documented people in this area. Of course, not anymore, so probably something to be mindful as we uh, celebrate Indigenous Peoples Day tomorrow. And uh, on that note, I'm just thinking about, uh, so here, I believe a Wampanoag mm-hmm. uh, uh, tribe, and um, interestingly, the running group that I belonged to, currently not a member uh, due to COVID, um, named themselves after that. And they're the Wampanoag Running Club or something like that, and then refer to themselves as the Wamps. And uh, just kind of interesting to think about that. And is that okay? Not okay? What's the point of something like that? Yeah, I mean, you know, you and I maybe just getting into something for a moment uh, have been listening to a podcast that inspired us for this seen on radio 
And uh, I think you recently listened to the one about the two schools considering changing the name of Redskins. Yeah. Yep. Yep. And uh, that was interesting. And so just on a, on a note here, you know, my son goes, sons now, King Philip Regional High School. Just a quick story. King Philip was the changed name of a Native American whose name was Metacomet. And uh, he led kind of the last rebellion against the colonists. And he lived, you know, this is kind of the general area. And, uh, you know, they lost, obviously, that rebellion. And the colonists actually put his head on a, on a pike, um, maybe his family as well. Some crazy story. And yet, you know, they name a high school after him here and we're the Warriors. And the mascot or the logo has been a, um, a Native American, like in a headdress. And it seems like they're making a change from that in some of the sports uniforms where they just have like an arrow, something like that, hmm. an arrowhead and not the, uh, the silhouette or the, the profile of a person. So it's interesting because I can't find any information about it, like about the change. It's like maybe it's happening, but it seems like kind of very subtle. And uh, Caleb, you know, my older son, who's playing soccer, thought that they'd have new uniforms this year and it would have the new logo, and it doesn't. So he's got this uh, older logo. Anyway, uh, kind of one of many things that are strange in our world. Hmm. Um, yeah. Well, yeah, related to that, in Maine, you know, there are many, there have been many schools in Maine deal, dealing with some of the same stuff. So the, the uh, news report, yeah, the big deal, deal yesterday was that the final school in Maine that was still called the Indians, the Skowhegan, their, their mm. mascot was the Indians. They, that's uh -huh. been a, a long controversy for a while. They announced last year that they were going to um, finally change the mascot. And just yesterday they announced that their new mascot is, I think it's called like the River Hawks is what they've chosen. Uh, uh huh. And so that just that happened to get announced yesterday. And you know, in Warriors, I work with another school that changed their their logo. They they were the Warriors, and they changed their logo away from a, sort of a very stereotypical Indian in a headdress just to um, the letter N. You know, which is the name of the school. Yeah. So they yeah. they kept the name Warriors, but they have sort of removed any visual reference to that being connected to Native Americans. So, which is, which is a move that, a couple, that, a couple states, uh, schools have done in the state. Yeah. I think that's what may be going on here. Yeah. And I feel like they could also move to, since our school is often called KP and not King Philip, 
I think they could just kind of move to this idea of just using KP, maybe just using the letters. Um, but yeah, we'll see what happens. But this is, I'm going to connect the dots between a few things, if you don't mind, on Please? some thoughts. By the way, in a few moments, I'll be running into Rhode Island, and I think it is just worth noting, technically, right now, people from Rhode Island are not supposed to come into Massachusetts unless they've um, quarantined, is my understanding. It's just so interesting right now. So when you um, cross the border, are you not allowed to come back? <laughs> right. You're right. I'm not coming back. Uh, but it's just uh, these states right near each other, very different things happening. Um, so in any case, I think something that really has caught my attention today in the past couple of weeks, and in a way connected to this idea of the, the names of schools, and I think we connect, can, can connect this to school stuff as well, is that, you know, the Justice Department the Federal Justice Department has just officially stopped any type of um, anti-bias, diversity, inclusion, whatever they had a kind of a name for it, type of training. So any training that, you know, teaches that people might have unconscious bias, even about gender in the workplace, race and gender, to not, you know, concurrently, Trump has talked about the idea of like curriculum, school curriculums that are like anti-American, right? That our curriculums need to teach students to love America. And so I just kind of, to me, all these things kind of fit together. It's this, this question of, can we... What does it mean to like love our country? And should we love our country? Is what does that mean? And and should we be teaching that? Or what does it mean to teach people that are citizens of our country? Um, you know, the 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 future citizens or voters of our country. I'm curious if you have any thoughts on that or read anything about it. I have a couple thoughts. I was thinking earlier this week that the concept of history, teaching history and what that means, really there are two, I think, almost divided ideas about history. And the interesting thing is, is that the people who really are worried or feel like we're somehow uh, disrespecting what America is or what uh, past American historical figures have done. And therefore, maybe used to be the people that, you know, thought like history is very important, right? To know dates and the founding and the documents are probably the very people who almost no longer want a rich teaching of history that is uh, nuanced and accurate. Because I think what's what's coming out is, <laughs> The idea of history has been a bit of a joke. Like what, 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 what is counted as what people need to learn is so both uh, one-sided to, to the point to being highly inaccurate. And so now I think it's almost 
on the left, this whole idea of like, we really need to, to learn history. But when they, when that's being said, they're not talking about what's perhaps in a textbook from 1970. We're talking about all the stuff that you and I have been reading about and learning about recently about yeah. you know, the, tr the true history. So I, I don't know if that directly connects to, to what you're saying, but I think so. And, and I think that schools are mainly responsible for really trying to nurture and grow every individual as richly as they can. And that means understanding your society, means understanding how to interact. I don't think it actually means too much about having to learn one specific thing or another, but learning a lot and learning how to learn. And if, and if you're doing that in a genuine way in America, you're going to have to tackle with all of the messy stuff that, you know, patriotic education might not want you to talk about. So I'm going to ask you a provocative question. Do you love your country? <laughs> <laughs> I ask myself this question all the time. And, and I don't have uh -huh. a satisfactory answer. I can't say yes and I can't say no. I, I definitely can't say no I, I, in, in the sense that, um, you know, I'm here and there, there are, I think there's a lot of good things that, you know, for me and for other people in this country. And I think there's potential, but uh, I'm not under any illusions that it's, it's the way it should be. So I'm conflicted. Uh, what about you? I would say, you know, the word love, I have a, just like a lot of respect for that word and use it carefully. Mm -hmm. um, and I would say what I feel generally is lucky to be mm -hmm. here, to live here. I feel like this idea of loving your country, like it's such a fate of, you know, I, what is it? Um, it's just fate that we happen to be here now. And, yeah, I mean, seems like America, knowing what I know, seems like a, a good place in a lot of ways, especially if you're a white man, to live these days in the world. On the other hand, I just have been exploring more and more this idea of American exceptionalism, and we're so being, uh, being more and more aware of how untrue our exceptionalist beliefs are when you compare what, what the last special year has been like for America. But, you know, like, I really, you know, I, I don't have an urge to live anywhere else. But nor do I, nor would I uh, hesitate to move somewhere else if there was a reason to do that. Like, I don't love the country in a way that I'd uh, feel like this is the only, this is the best ever type of thing. It just doesn't make sense to me, even intellectually. But I think that, anyway, I don't want to go too far down this rabbit hole. But this idea of using like love and this idea of, I'll tie in this idea of like God bless America, that <laughs> type of thing. 
just doesn't make sense to me. Like, yeah. out of all the humans in the world right now, in the past as well, like, we are the ones that got it right. It just doesn't, doesn't work yeah. in a lot of different ways. Yeah. Well, I, I think your point about being lucky is is a key point. That's probably a key point about most people in history being successful. I think of the um, Daniel Pink book, When. I don't know if you read that. but No, I didn't he, read that. Yeah, I, I thought it was pretty good. And he makes a key argument that, like, among many pieces, like, sort of when someone is born – has a lot to do with ultimate success. Oh, yeah. a really nice job about Bill Gates. He basically makes the argument that if Bill Gates had been born even a few years earlier or later, he would not have been Bill Gates. We wouldn't know him. Right. There was so much that came yeah. together. So, But your point about feeling lucky is probably, as you alluded, very tied up in the fact that we are middle-class white males, right? And each one of those has its own piece. But... You might not feel so lucky to have been born in the United States, even even in 1972 when you were born, if yeah. some of those other contexts were different. Right. Yeah, yeah. And, other identities for sure. Yeah, absolutely. And and American exceptionalism is a ridiculous idea, and um, it, <laughs> we, sh we should stop talking about that. And I think it's it's right there with the idea of meritocracy which i just love to bring up like this oh, right. idea that the meritocracy is somehow at work uh for people who who have succeeded uh so all of that is just stupid and um <laughs> we, we can push that aside and forget about the god thing because you're talking to an atheist so all right i'm with you so and i'm not even so culturally is, jewish so i don't even have a <laughs> oh my god don't uh, interesting things going on in the ultra orthodox Jewish community in New York. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Which is, to me, you know, as extreme, if not more extreme than a, like our most extreme event, evangelicals. Yeah. Uh, you know, Christian and evangelicals. But in any case, wait, let I me circle back. One more thing. Before yeah. we move on, just on this, because um, I, I, I read, so the idea of patri patriotic education and this stuff, I read a really good article, uh, or maybe more of a commentary, I think it was in Medium or something, that was talking about how Trump can't, you know, by himself, Trump can't rewrite school curriculum, right? But... Right. The, the, their, their headline was like a thousand mini Trumps on school boards can. And I think this points to another right. strange thing about the way American public education works with the control of local school boards, which in concept, I agree with a lot of it, but I don't see it play yeah. out well. And I'm seeing this very example happening with a school board of a school I work with right now, where there are two new members who obviously politically conservative, who are throwing up concerns about some of the anti-bias training that the school is trying to do for its teachers. And yep. uh, so that's not Trump, but the inspiration of some of the things he's talking about is prompting people town by town 
to pick up the fight. And they actually have more power over what's going to happen in the school in the coming years than the federal yep. government is. Well, that's a, so I'm going to pull it all together first. I'm going to try. So we had a, we had a listener comment um, after our last episode where we really started to unpack our own kind of complicitness in education by kind of thinking about our own work in schools. And this listener said, you know, you're maybe being a little hard on yourself. Uh, You know, when we, I think, also wanted to talk about maybe what we did right. Um, And I have a thought on this. And I want to be clear and careful. What I'm going to share, I'm not sure is right or good, but it's certainly different than what we're talking about. Like, I think the schools we worked at explicitly made an attempt to support the idea of critical thinking and critiquing the social order, helping students understand and build the thinking skills to say, well, what do I think or what's really going on here? Um, Whether it was in a like constructivist math classroom that says, this isn't about you learning how someone else figured out how to do something, but figuring it out for yourself and building your own concepts, which I think is very powerful, or even the way our writing workshop and reading workshop focused on really understanding what people were doing and making decisions for ourselves and for the students for themselves of how they wanted to show up as writers and as readers. And then, and you know, the uh, any social studies curriculum as well. So kind of looking at looking at things from a, what would be seen as an atypical angle by a more conservative curriculum. So I recognize in one hand that this was maybe easy for progressive, affluent white people and white men to kind of like say, we should be doing this and kind of putting that on kids of color. On the other hand, it does seem like the, the real opposite of what we're seeing in so many schools right now. What do you think about that? Well, I'll give one example where I think we were trying to do something right. So SOAR, the school in Denver, both schools in Denver, were responsive classroom schools. So I can't take credit for some of the great work that I think is tied to responsive classroom. But responsive classroom has five core values that you talk about really trying to foster in children. And I think four of them would be, everyone would be like, in any school in America, right? Cooperation, Mm -hmm. responsibility, empathy, self-control. Like if you go into most schools in America, those things are going to be things that they say 
we want kids doing, right? Cooperate, self-control, that's a big one. The sure. fifth one, which I remember really thinking deeply about when I first became familiar with the responsive classroom is assertiveness. Yeah, and I found yeah. it. Yeah, I found it so interesting that of all the values that could be chosen for, you know, working with elementary children, that you would choose assertiveness. And the more that I, at the time, and have continued to think about it, the more I thought how central that that quality, that skill, has to be for children if we really want to um, capitalize on their ability to be, you know, all that they can be. And I think schools often work the opposite, right? It's, it becomes about compliance. Now, I think we did a lot of compliance stuff uh, and, and classrooms operate that way sometimes, but aspiring to help kids develop assertiveness in really uh, fundamental ways, I think is so important. And I remember an example, a quick example, um, that we had a, a, a sub who said, um, uh, some kind of homophobic remark and immediately the kids spoke out about that and came and let the rest of us know. Uh, yeah. and I think in, you know, now that might have, that may have had nothing to do with it you know, responsive classroom or assertiveness or, or the culture we were creating, those, a student or two may have done that no matter what. But I felt like, I think in a lot of places, I, I to me, I felt like that's what should happen, right? There's something a child sees that they don't feel is right, they should immediately try to do something about it, even if it's an authority figure that's doing it. So. The, uh, that's great. I mean, this is like standing up for what you believe. Like knowing your voice is important and being willing to say, this is what I think on so many levels, whether it's, again, this is the way to solve this math problem, or that is not okay to say or to believe. Um, it brings me to an interesting story. I don't know. You were not asked why during this time, I think where there was basically a student protest. You know, remember, so I became K through eight, so you had middle school. You know, so you have, you know, by the end of middle school, you have some young adults and uh, with you. And um, I don't know how much you remember. There was a, a termination of a staff member, black woman. And I won't go into the details. Uh, and it was very tricky, you know, for a lot of reasons. I think could could have been would have been handled differently in hindsight, but it happened. And the kids protested. Do you remember this? Mm. You weren't there, were you? No, I wasn't. Uh, so, you know, we had a uniform policy, although it was pretty lax. Basically, you could wear whatever you wanted, except you had to wear the fly shirt, right? And we had a lot of different versions of that. Yep. So the kids were like, no, we're not wearing our shirts. You know, we're not hmm. wear the uniform. Like the whole, like most, if not almost all, of the middle school. And, hmm. you know, like that's in theory, 
a, a, you know, violation of something, right? So I remember being in the hall with them, kind of gathering them all in the hall. You know, it's probably like, a, I don't know, 75 to 100 students. And uh, just kind of saying, like, look, you have the right to do this. Just make sure you're doing it because you believe what you're doing, not just because you're copycatting someone else that's doing it. And, you know, I understand you're upset. And let's, let's move on. You know, we're not move on. Let's, we're, we're not going to do anything about this. And you have a right to be upset and to do what you're doing. Um, so, I mean, I don't know. I look at that and uh, there was also tied to that. That is just a very vulnerable uh, issue for me personally. You know, we used to do those huge community circles. Right. Every the whole school week, yep. the whole school in the gym. During that time, when this was happening, we didn't, you know, we didn't stop doing those things, and we knew it was, you know, people were on edge, and we invited the community, you know, parents to come and speak, and one of the parents took advantage of that and really went off. Um, in a way that was, you know, in retrospect, if it happened today, I mean, all of this if it happened today, both because of the political atmosphere, but also because of my own growth and John's growth, we would have handled the whole thing very differently. But, uh, and he was really kind of attacking uh, me and Jonna personally as well in front of kindergarten kids, right? In front of five-year-olds to 15-year-olds no one really stopped him just kind of kept going and it, it really felt like this isn't okay um and like it would be okay for him to say this to us but not in this space and uh so you know I stepped kind of do into you, the circle. Do you still believe that, though? I mean, wh why do you get to control when he says that, what he wants, when he needs yeah. to say as part of the school? Community? I think, I think this was, uh, you know, it's a good question. I think it was not the norm. It was so norm breaking, but that's a good question. And I don't remember yeah. exactly. It'd be but interesting to think about. Protest is norm breaking, right? You know? <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. No, it's a good question. And in the, in this environment, I th again think the whole thing up to this point would have been done differently. Mm. Um, but it w maybe the only difference, and I'll think about this more. And I feel myself getting defensive. But the only uh, like this wasn't someone coming to protest some like it wasn't coming from outside it was someone that was invited and used that invitation and kind of the in a sense the bully pulpit it's kind of like I would say 
was it okay what Trump did in the debate with Biden? Well, he was invited to be there and supposed to be there doing that, doing the debate, but he went so far over the line of what, you know, you could, what would be productive at all. The reason I'm telling that story um, kind of circles back to assertion. So I stepped in basically with my hands. I remember this kind of out to the side and just kind of like trying to get him to stop without confronting, you know, in a, in a way that seemed reasonable in, this, in that time. He wouldn't. And I really was like at a point of like, what is about to happen here? And uh, uh, eighth grade young woman stepped forward and told him to stop. She said, this is not okay. This is our thing, not yours. And what you're doing right now is not okay. And he stopped. And it was, she was a kind of a leader, very, you know, strong in so many ways. Not surprised at all that this is the young lady that stepped forward. And, but also that dynamic. So that moment, that whole experience was so well, difficult in so many ways. But also I take from that, you know, the strength of this young lady to do that. It was not an easy thing to do. Anyway, now go at it. <laughs> no, I, I, I'm not going to go at it. I, I will ask one question, though, because you brought it back to her. So how much do you think you and Jana sort of got the, get the credit? And I'm not saying you shouldn't. Like, so how much is the fact that she stood up part of the work you were trying to do and could be credited to the work of the school? Yeah. I, I would only say that, like, even having this opportunity where the school gathers in this big space and creates a sense of community with all these age levels, and then allows people to come into the space and address the community, I think it's pretty atypical. And then for students to know that they have a voice in that space, that again, this happened during the week that they're basically protesting, a popular staff member had just left the school, there was definitely a racial dynamic to it, I mean, and yet, I will say this, I will only say, I'm not patting myself on the back in any way, instead of clamping down, we opened up to some extent. And, you know, I don't know if I'll take credit for that, I'll just say, that's what we did. This is what I'd like to propose, because we're at the end of our time here. Yep. There's a question. There's a question that you raised last time we talked, which was, should 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 we have even had the right to do the school leadership work that you're talking about right now? I, I'd really like us to take at least a few minutes, perhaps next time, to dig into a little bit of the question of what is the role 
of white people, maybe white men, just because we can speak personally from that, but what is the role of white people in education reform and leadership? And what should it be right now in 2020? Uh, I feel like there's, I still need to wrestle with that idea. I don't have an answer for that, but I'd love to engage with you about that broader question in maybe in our next talk. What do you think? Yeah. Yeah. I think it would be, yeah, I just, I would like us not to use the word education reform and, <laughs> <Okay. Yes. laughs> and talk about what, and we can talk about why and talk about, yeah, just like we could ask this space, this question of what is our role within social change movements, social justice movements, and specifically as it relates to education and schools. Yeah. Uh, and yeah, and you're I'm not just also do social change or social justice without thinking about schools as well. So it all comes together. Yeah, no, yeah, and we can totally focus on the school stuff. I'm just kind of framing it. Education yep. reform to me about, um, you know, wh white, wealthy uh, folks, liberals, basically liberals, experimenting in urban areas with students of color and like how I, I will have to do a little searching. It was, it really hit me as this, like, are we part of any solution or are we just kind of doing what we want to do because we think it's right? Um, which I think will tie to this question we have next week, next time we talk. I'd like to, that's yeah. exactly what I'm talking about. Yeah, good. Okay. Um, all right. I just got home to drop off the dog. The dog is fit and such, but not a 20 miler yet. Although it'd be interesting to see what he could, <laughs> how he could do. And then we did, let's see, probably about six miles. Um, pleasure to talk with you as always. Always. All right. Have a great, um, long weekend here. And mm -hmm. I will look forward to, to picking this up uh, sometime soon. Have a good day. Take it easy. You too. <laughs> Bye, Mark. Bye. Thank you for listening to the 3 to 10 Project, Episode 5. Instead of clamping down, we opened up, recorded October 11th, 2020. We acknowledge that this isn't the best audio quality on this episode, but that's what you get when one of our hosts is running through the wilds of Rhode Island in the middle of a pandemic. And we would be remiss to not say thank you to Random Chiz for our excellent theme music.